gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, don't be afraid to step right up, be enchanted, blown away, but above all, be amused. The following acts will unveil the world's many faces, faces with or without a smile, faces of sadness with stubborn frowns, filled with malice, mischief, bile, the fools, the jokers and the clowns, release the monsters and the man upon a world so woe begun, we say you time and time again, the freak show of life is always on. Let us begin. Welcome back to an all-new episode of Not Another Horror Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and tonight we are on Season 1, Episode 13. A lot of people think the number 13 is bad luck, but over here it seems to be our lucky number. I personally want to thank all of you who voted for us in the Smeepo Awards last week. The show was nominated in three categories, and we won one. That one being best true crime series, so thanks for that. And this is just the beginning. Some of you were vocal about the last episode not being up to standards, and I do agree with you. On a personal note, sometimes our mental health hinders the creativity, but as they say, the show must go on. Tonight wraps up our journey into the cabinet of curiosities. We've come a long way over these last two episodes, with it being episode 13, I figured I'd take you on a little trip into the darker stories before we get to the grand finale. And the first story is going to be about the zombie chicken. Yes, you heard that right. Now I'm sure we've all heard the expression running around like a chicken with his head cut off, but have you heard the story of the chicken that lived 18 months without a head? No? Well, let me regale you with it. The year 1945 marked the end of World War II, the inauguration of Chiquita Bananas, and the birth of one of Colorado's greatest wonders, Mike the Headless Chicken. Now, Mike doesn't have any connections to freak shows, but he was a sideshow of his own, a tourist attraction, if you will. How did that happen? Well, Mike wasn't an extraordinary chicken by any means. He was a wind-a-wet chicken. And if I pronounce that wrong, please feel free to tell me. <laughs> he was bred solely for his brown eggs and yellow-skinned meat. For those of us who aren't farmers, Mike was just an average chicken. Or at least that's what farmers Clara and Lloyd Olson and Farida, Colorado thought when they plucked Mike from his coop on September 10th, 1945. Accounts differ on the day's events. Either the Olsons were killing all of their chickens or they killed Mike specifically for Clara's mother to eat. No matter the reason, things took an unexpected turn almost immediately when after cutting off his head, Mike continued to spit and sputter out of his exposed neck. Apparently when one of the Olsons swung their knife, they missed a five-month-old chicken's juggler vein, 
And it didn't stop there. The attempted beheading was so far off that one of Mike's ears and most of his brainstem remained intact. Instead of running around as headless chickens do, Mike started to walk. He even made this weird blood-gurgling sound when he tried to cluck. Then, he even tried to peck the ground for food. A grotesque and disturbing sight to most, the Olsons found another use for their newly headless chicken. Instead of backtracking and finishing the job, the Colorado farmers sought out ways to cultivate their zombie bird. They concocted this weird mixture of grain, water, and milk, and used an eyedropper to feed Mike via his neck. Alive and well, the Olsons brought Mike to the public and he became a historic part of the town's legacy. Miracle Mike rose to fame rapidly, granting featured profiles in both Time and Life magazines. Mike was undoubtedly a Colorado wonder and a business venture at that. As word spread about the Headless Chicken, Mike went on to nationwide tours with people paying as much as 25 cents to see him. But his fame lasted for the remainder of his headless life until one fateful night in an Arizona motel 18 months after his beheading when Mike choked on a corn kernel and sadly croaked. As interesting as it sounds, to me the most horrible part of this story is how we as humans would allow an animal to suffer that long for financial gain. But speaking of financial gain, that would be the motive for our next story. Throughout history, wherever there has been something different, there's always been someone there to profit off of it. Let's talk about Dr. Eugene Boyer. Did he fall victim to a mysterious infection, or was his death, which in 1932 investigation by Liberty Magazine refers to as the strangest, the most bizarre, and the least known circus tragedy of this generation, a result of supernatural revenge? Before his career as manager of the U. Bungie, Doug Bill Savages, the star attraction and one of the most infamous, culturally misguided, and flat-out racist circus sideshows in American history, the doctor was carving a place for himself in the history books of African exploration. By the time he brought the Sausalip tribes people to America in 1930, he'd become a much-decorated explorer, having, among other adventurers, served as naturalist on the 1924-1925 Black Cruise, one of two expeditions sponsored by Francis Citron Company to prove that it was possible to cross Africa by motorized vehicles. Of his Ubungis, they were actually members of the Sarah tribe in modern-day Chad. The Monica Ubungi came from a Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey combined RBBC circus spin doctor. The female contingent practiced lip extension, stretching both their upper and lower lips over the years with increasingly larger wooden discs. Former Circus Historical Society President Richard Reynolds writes that the explorer first encountered the tribe in Africa during the Black Cruise. What happened upon his particular group in Paris at an ethnological show where he arranged to be their manager before leading them on a tour through the Americas. In the United States, the Ubunkies were a RBBBC sensation. Shown as part of the circus's African village exhibit because you know, human zoos were a thing. Which visitors walked through and 
That concluded with lemons from an actor playing Captain Callahan, a brave and durable old salt who survived being horribly tortured by a ferocious group of savages in the Cameroons, who were about to fling his ravished body into a steaming pot of boiling water after a sadist beast had decapitated his penis and testicles. Wow. <laughs> But relations between the doctor and his stars soon grew sour. They accused him of pocketing their salaries, which, I mean, in all fairness, he was doing. And a furious exchange ensued in a tent. Witnesses say the doctor emerged badly shaken, terrified even. A few days later, the explorer fled Chicago to Sarasota, Florida, reportedly in fear for his life. Shortly after arriving to Sarasota on October 13, 1930, he died suddenly of mysterious causes. In the end, coroners attributed his death to septic pneumonia, possibly brought on by an infection from a pimple on his left leg. But witnesses who overheard the argument in Chicago spread rumors that the Sarah Tribes people had put a black magic curse on him. A purported quote from one of the Yubungis, possibly generated by the Circus Spin Doctor, He don't die. We made him die. Ran in newspapers and helped to perpetuate the rumors of a curse. Liberty Magazine describes the explorer's final moments as spent suffering and agony on his deathbed. The victim of an unidentified curse. The doctor knew he was doomed. And Why? But his lips remain sealed, and therein abides a horrible and fantastic tale. Speaking of dark tales and death, have you ever heard of a doctor labeling the cause of death as fear? Well, that is what happened to the twins Chang and Ing. Chang and Ng might not be household names, but they did make an important contribution to the sideshow's history. They were the original Siamese twins, so-called because they were conjoined twins who were born in Siam, modern-day Thailand, in 1811. Joined at the sternum, the brothers lived their lives facing chest to chest, though with modern medicine, they'd easily be separable, since they shared no major organs other than a slightly fused liver. But here's another quick fact for you. If they had tried separating them back then, they would have surely died. <laughs> As the boys grew older, they settled in North Carolina, adopted their surname Bunker, bought a plantation, and yes, they had slaves, and even married a pair of non-conjoined sisters with whom they fathered a total of 21 children. Due to the brothers' condition, their marriage bed was custom-built and had room for the four of them to sleep together. Later, however, the two wives reportedly found they couldn't get along, and so the brothers moved into two separate houses, alternately spending three days to a week at each, depending on the source. They died on January 17, 1874, but not at the same time. Chang died of a stroke brought on by pneumonia sometime in the night. Ng discovered his brother the next morning lifeless, and a doctor was called for an emergency separation. But something weird happened. Ng, 
had already died by the time he arrived. The official cause of death? Fear. Now here we are at our last and most tragic story. Joseph Merrick. Also known as the Elephant Man. By far probably one of the most famous on this list. Joseph was an apparently healthy baby born to Mary Jane and Joseph Merrick in Leicester, England on August 5, 1862. His parents attributed their son's development of lumpy gray skin in early childhood to his mother being knocked over by a fairground elephant while she was pregnant. Because that makes sense. <laughs> Despite increasing physical deformities, including the development of a bony lump on his forehead, Joseph had a relatively normal childhood. One of his arms and both of his feet became enlarged and at some point during his childhood he fell and damaged his hip, resulting in permanent lameness. He attended school and had a close relationship with his mother. In 1873, when Merrick was just 11 years old, his mother died of bronchial pneumonia. He later was described to the passing as the greatest sadness in his life. His father remarried less than a year later and Merrick left school to seek work, eventually finding a job rolling cigars in a factory. But less than two years later, his right hand had become so badly deformed that he could no longer do the work and was forced to leave. His father would later be able to obtain him a peddler's license for him and send him out to the streets to sell his shop wares. By this point, however, Merrick's deformities were so extreme and his speech so impaired as a result that people were either frightened of him or unable to understand him and his efforts were met with little success. One day after his father beat him severely for not earning enough money, Merrick went to live with an uncle briefly before becoming a resident at the Leicester Union Workhouse at age 17. Merrick found life in the workhouse intolerable. When unable to find any other means of supporting himself, he was forced to stay. In 1884, Merrick decided to try to profit from his deformities and escape life in the workhouse. He contacted Sam Tor, the owner of a Leicester music hall called the Gaiety Palace of Varieties, and they devised a plan to secure him a spot in Human Oddities show. Merrick was soon exhibited as the Elephant Man, half man, half elephant, to great success in Leicester and Nottingham before eventually traveling to London that November. He wore a cape and veil to conceal his deformities in public, but was often harassed by mobs as he traveled in London. The Elephant Man exhibit was a house across the street from the London Hospital and was frequently visited by medical students and doctors interested in Merrick's condition. Merrick was eventually invited by a surgeon named Frederick Trevis to visit the hospital to be examined. The result of Trevis' examination showed that by that point, Merrick's deformities had become extreme. His head measured 36 inches in circumference and his right hand 12 inches at the wrist. His body was covered with tumors and his legs and hip were so deformed that he had to walk with a cane. He found to be in otherwise good health. Trevis presented Merrick to the Pathological Society of London in December of that year and asked Merrick to visit the hospital for further examination. But Merrick refused, 
later recalling that the experiences made him feel like an animal in a cattle market. By 1885, a distaste for freak shows had developed in Britain, and Merrick and his managers decided to try to move the Elephant Man exhibit to Belgium. The show met with only mediocre success, however, Merrick's manager there eventually robbed him of his life savings and abandoned him. After finding passage on his ship back to England in June of 1886, Merrick was mobbed by a crowd at Liverpool Street Station in London and taken into custody by the police. Unable to understand Merrick, they eventually found Frederick Trevis' business card on him and took him to the London hospital. Trevis examined Merrick at the hospital and found that his condition had severely deteriorated in the previous two years. By this time, Merrick was extensively disfigured, with bony protrusions and soft tissue swellings covering much of his body. He also experienced physical and psychological pain. To avoid the stares and attention of others, he covered himself in a cape and veil whenever he ventured outside. Distressed by the reaction of others to his body, Merrick often quoted a poem by the hymn writer Isaac Watts. "'Tis true, my form is something odd, but blaming me is blaming God." However, the hospital considered incapable of caring for incurables such as him and it seemed that Merrick would be forced to fend for himself yet again. When the chairman of the London hospital, Carl Grom, was unable to find another hospital to care for Merrick, he decided to publish a letter in the Times, describing Merrick's case and asking for help. Grom's letter resulted in a sympathetic public outpouring, and enough financial donations to provide Merrick with a home for the rest of his life. And in 1887, Several rooms in the London hospital were converted to living quarters for him. A lot of people recognized Merrick, and this resulted in his being aided by members of the British upper class, most notably the actress, Mage Kendall, and Alexandra, the Princess of Wales. Future accounts of Merrick's life depict him and Kendall interacting in person and having a deep rapport. It was believed that this was probably never the case. The actress's husband, however, did visit Merrick, while Kendall herself helped raise money for Merrick's care and sent him several gifts. Merrick always wanted to go to the theater, and he got to do that on at least one occasion. He made trips to the countryside several times over the next few years. When he was at home, he spent his time conversing with Trevis, one of the few people who could understand him, or writing prose and poetry with the help of a nursing staff. He also built an elaborate cardboard cathedral, which he sent to Madge Kendall, and which would later be exhibited at the hospital. Despite Merrick's newfound support structure, his condition, however, continued to worsen during his time at the London Hospital. On April 11, 1890, Joseph Merrick would die. Due to the size of his head, he had for his whole life slept sitting up, with his head resting against his knees. The official cause of death was asphyxiation, due to his head crushing his windpipe. Although Trevis, who dissected the body, said that Merrick had died of a dislocated neck, he believed that Merrick, who had to sleep sitting up because of the weight of his head, had been attempting to sleep lying down, to be like other people 
and summarized that he died from a crushed or severed spinal cord after his head fell back due to positioning on the bed. Trevis arranged for casts to be made of Merrick's body. He also took skin samples and probably oversaw the bleaching and mounting of his skeleton. Merrick is now thought to have suffered from Protus Syndrome. His life has been the subject of numerous plays, films, and books, which focus on his intelligence and sensitivity as a message of tolerance. Michael Jackson would even try to buy his skeleton, offering 500000 and when they declined, he upped it to $1 million. But it was a no-go. No one knows if his body will ever know peace, but... His skeleton is still being housed for medical studies. Well, that wraps up our journey into the cabinet of curiosities for now. Next week, we are headed to Memphis, Tennessee. As always, if you like the show, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Stay safe, stay sane, and please don't keep any half-dead chickens. <laughs>